Uh, good morning, South Church. Thank you, Pastor Corb and the music team for that song. Uh, I requested that song last week to be sung before I preached this morning. In my mind, I knew Don and Ernie's video was going to be up, and of course I was there for it, so I knew what we talked about. I knew I was preaching today, but in my mind I didn't connect the two. And when I begin preaching this morning as we get into the message, you're going to think that my message is built off of uh, the conversation with Don and Ernie, but that's uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. I give all the credit to him for that, of course. There are two great mysteries wrapped up in the Christmas story. Two great truths that Christians hold dear, but apart from faith, we can't even begin to understand. One we will celebrate in just a couple of weeks. It's what the Advent season is all about, the coming of Jesus, the, that first time 2,000 years ago when God became man in the form of a little baby boy. We call that mystery the incarnation. God taking on a body, a human nature. The second great mystery is summed up in a word that also begins with the letter I. This word is not as well known, but it is just as important. It's the other I in the Christmas story. And together, these two mysteries answer the question, what Jesus became so we could become. Ethan, I don't have the remote access here. There we go. The incarnation tells us that Jesus became a human being just like us. I'll get to the second mystery I word in just a second. A couple of weeks ago, my wife Naomi and I got away for some R&R. And one of the things that we did together was watch some episodes of The Crown. And by together, I mean I was sitting next to her while it was on. For those of you who may not know about The Crown, it's a period drama about the current Queen Elizabeth's life. And at one point, my attention was drawn to the drama. Let me set the scene. Queen Elizabeth, for the first time, is being forced to replace her royal friends with commoners at a yearly party. These people were lined up outside the palace, and Elizabeth and her mother are watching from a second-story window, and, and they see a car dealer, a boxer named Harry the Hammer, a local restaurateur, a bus driver, a bank clerk, and a woman policeman trapes up the path of Buckingham Palace. The queen mum is far from thrilled about opening up and becoming more like the average folk. This is what she says as she complains about what they're being forced into, and I'm not going to even attempt a British accent. All to open things up. Yes. Bring us more in line with the real world. 
democratize us, and so it goes. The stings and bites we suffer as it slips away. Bit by bit, piece by piece, our authority, our absolutism, our divine rights. The history of the monarchy in this country is a one-way street of humiliation, sacrifices, and concessions in order to survive. First, the barons came for us, then the merchants, now the journalists. Small wonder we make such a fuss about curtsies, protocols, and precedents. Can we go back one, please? I accidentally hit the screen. It's all we have left. The last scraps of armor as we go from ruling to reigning. To what? To being nothing at all. Marionettes. I told the master of the household to rotate the gifts between courses so that if you get a dud, don't worry. It'll be 15 minutes at worst. What a contrast with what we know about Jesus' incarnation. Instead of bemoaning what he had to give up, Jesus gave up so much more than what these ladies had. All because of his love for us. If there are two pillars of the gospel, the first is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But this verse leaves us with the unanswered question. On what basis can God give us everlasting life? The question is answered by the second mystery of Christmas. The other I in the Christmas story. And that question leads us to our text for this morning, the second pillar of the gospel, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The other I in Christmas is described by this word, imputation. Can you say that word with me? Imputation. We all know the word incarnation. Maybe this is a new word. But it's a very important word that we're going to look at this morning. Incarnation is when God took on a human body and a human nature. Not a sin nature, but a human nature nonetheless. And the first aspect of imputation that we're going to look at this morning is when on the cross, the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. The Greek reads like this. The one who did not know sin, for us, sin was made. Now, let's talk about sin for a minute. From a human perspective, from the perspective that we all share, and let's admit some things that are true 
about sin from our perspective. First of all, we enjoy sin. If we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't do it. And the Bible affirms this. In Hebrews eleven twenty four through 25, we read this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to, what's that next word? Enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is pleasure in sin. It's a fleeting pleasure, but it's still fun. And the fleeting aspect of the fun can sometimes mean seconds, but other times, days, weeks, months, maybe even years. And that leads me to the second thing that is true about sin for all of us. We envy others when they sin. They seemingly get away with enjoying their sin. Notice how Asaph describes his own experience in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was, what's that next word? Envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And there's a third thing about sin that is true for all of us. We question why others seem to get away with sin. In the middle of Job's suffering, when he was enduring the critique of his friends, Job answers one of their criticisms by lamenting the fact that rather than being punished by God immediately for their sins, wicked people often prosper. Check this out from Job 21, beginning in verse 7. Why do the wicked live? reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Behold, is not prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. As humans, we enjoy sin ourselves. We envy it in others while at the same time questioning why God doesn't do something about it in them. But now let's think about sin from Jesus' perspective. The Bible describes Jesus as being sinless. Hebrews 4.15 describes Jesus in this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of the first eye in Christmas incarnation, Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted by sin. But because he was born without a sin nature, he never gave in to any of those temptations. Never once did he enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Never once did he envy sin in other people. Never once did he look on longingly at other people, seemingly to 
seemingly getting away with sin. He hated sin. He was repulsed by it. And that's what makes the second eye in Christmas all the more remarkable. When God made Jesus become sin, it was imputed to him. He took on the guilt of sin without ever committing sin himself. In other words, think of the pain that you experience when sin catches up with you. The separation that comes. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Death means separation. The damaged and or destroyed relationships that result from your sin. Sometimes big things like the loss of a job because of your sin. The loss of your reputation because of your sin. The guilt because of your sin. The shame because of your sin. All the pain and regret that accompany these repercussions. We deserve that when we sin. But usually we still get to enjoy the pleasures of it for a little bit. Jesus, on the other hand, had to endure all the repercussions without any of the pleasure. And instead of envying those who seemingly were getting away with their sins, think of the ones who were nailing him to the cross, committing the worst sin in the history of mankind, deicide, the killing of the Son of God. Instead of being envious of them, he pitied them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the worst repercussion that Jesus would have to endure because our sins were imputed to him, the full wrath of God came down upon him. Matthew 27 Verses 45 and 46, dis, dis, 46 describes Jesus' death in this way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened in that three-hour span of time when the world turned dark and Jesus hung alone on the tree? Jesus answers with his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul describes this in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Even in the Old Testament, when God punished his people for their sin, his punishment had a limit to it. He was in control. They never experienced the full thrust of his wrath. 
Even when God destroyed the world with the flood, he spared Noah, his family, and the animals. But when the sins of the world were imputed to Jesus, when Jesus became sin, when the curse was placed upon him, God did not hold back. There's so much mystery surrounding the two eyes of Christmas. Incarnation. Imputation. But one aspect of the imputation of sin to Jesus that is hard for us to understand, though easy for us to describe, is the fact that because Jesus was divine, he was God, he never stopped being God when he became man. Because he was infinite, his sacrifice, his payment, his substitution for us also was infinite. It could cover the sins of the whole world. That one action, that one point in time was sufficient for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Easy to say, difficult to understand and comprehend and fully take in. It should leave us in awe and wonder. But how does that imputation of sin to Jesus benefit us? For that, we have to go to the last part of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The last phrase in the Greek reads like this, that we might become God's righteousness in him. Now we come to the second aspect of imputation. Just like God made Jesus to become sin, sin was imputed to him. In turn, God makes those who are in him become righteous. Righteousness is imputed to us. Just like Christ never sinned, never enjoyed sin, never envied sinners, never questioned God, yet he became sin. Sin was imputed to him. So we who do enjoy sin and envy sinners and question God when sinners seemingly get away with their sin, when we are in Jesus, we become righteous. Righteousness is imputed to us. The two key words here are in him. The righteousness of Jesus is only imputed to those who are in him. Paul describes these people in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who are in him, that is, in Christ, have been crucified with Christ. 
This is how Paul begins the passage that Pastor Doug read for us this morning. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, because we are in Christ, Christ's death becomes our death. He joins us in our guilt of sin, and we join him in his sacrificial death for that sin. At the end of the movie, End of the Spear, Steve Saint tells about his friend Minkaye's first trip to the United States. Minkaye is from Ecuador, and not just Ecuador, but a member of the isolated Waodani tribe. After he and Steve return to Ecuador, Minkaye describes grocery shopping to the members of his village. To him, food houses are wondrous places with endless amounts of food. He describes it this way. People take it out, but no one brings it in. <laughs> and taking it out is oh so easy. This is what he says. This is how he describes it as the villagers are sitting around their fire and he's describing this to his wife. The only thing you have to do is when you are leaving, you have to go by the place where the young foreign girls stand. They look at you very seriously. But if you just stand there and smile, when they smile back, you can take all your food and go eat it happily. <laughs> at this point, Steve Saint corrects Minkaya's story by explaining that the food needs to be paid for and shows the group a credit card. Don't worry, Minkaya explains. They just give that thing right back to you. <laughs> and then you can go and eat all your food. To many people, that's how they envision the imputation of sin onto Christ and his imputation of righteousness onto us. We have a very serious moment with Jesus. We walk an aisle. We kneel by our bed at home. We confess that we are sinners. We ask Jesus to forgive us for our sins. And we make a transaction with God. And then we go our way and live our lives however we want. To us, it's just an exchange, this transaction that takes place. We stand at arm's length and make the exchange of our sins for his righteousness. And we think that's all there is to it. But that's not what imputation is at all. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Instead of picturing it as an arm's length transaction that you make and then go your own way, instead picture it like it actually is. Two people becoming united as one. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Talk about mystery. Sin is imputed to Christ. Righteousness is imputed to us. And this all happens because we are united with Jesus. We are one with him. What was true about us, we were guilty, became true about him. And what was true about him, he was not guilty, becomes true about us all because we are in him. If you are here this morning or, or watching on the live stream and have never previously understood what I'm talking about. In other words, if you have not appropriated the effect of Christ's death for your sins, then today is your day. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the verses that Don shared with us this morning, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Christmas is a gift-giving season. Unfortunately, gift-giving in many instances has become obligatory. In other words, there are certain people you give gifts to, not because you want to, but because you feel you have to. For example, someone gives a gift to you and you receive it with some degree of regret because you know now you have to reciprocate. Or it's even more awkward when you exchange gifts and the gift you receive is much more valuable than the gift you gave. But it's not that way with Christ. His gift of salvation is free. There is no way that we can reciprocate his gift to us. Nothing we can do to earn it. We can only receive it through faith. And it is freeing. It frees us from the bondage of the sinful life we once lived. The next verse in Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what Paul means when he writes back in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those who are in Christ are freed from the bondage of sin to live the life that God, their creator, has prepared for them to live. If you have never received the gift of God by faith, by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, I invite you to do so today. I'd love to talk with you if you're here or if you're watching. Feel free to contact me or one of the pastors If you have already received God's free gift of salvation, then my challenge for you is also from 2 Corinthians 
What is your mission? What is your purpose in life? Ernie summed it up well by quoting 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that verse finds its foundation in chapter 5 and verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. No longer live for yourselves. Live for, for him who died for your sake and was raised. Once again, I would love to talk with you this morning. One of the pastors would love to talk with you, or if you're watching on the live stream, feel free to contact us. What does that mean to have that kind of purpose in life? What Jesus became so we could become. Jesus became sin so we could become righteous. Sin was imputed to Christ. Righteousness is imputed to us. This is the heart of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 stands with John 3.16 as the two pillars of why Jesus came. Will you please bow with me in prayer? The song we sang just before the message goes like this. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured out all for love. The whole earth trembled and the veil was torn. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All the glory to you, God, the light of the world. Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. You're the Lord of all. The Lord of all. Let me give you just a few moments to reflect on what we have been discussing this morning. I don't know where you are today in your walk with Jesus Christ. Maybe you need today to be like Ernie for that first time. Truly repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that right now wherever you are. He'll hear you and he'll save you. Maybe you as a Christian need to refocus your mission. Why are you here? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you do what you do? Are you doing it all for the one who died and rose again for you, who gave his life for you? 
Are you an ambassador for Christ? Heavenly Father, we have looked at your word this morning and it has touched our hearts. Lord, I pray that it will have the impact on each individual that you desire it to have this morning. May your Holy Spirit do his work. In Jesus' name, amen. All God's people said, you're dismissed.